Tribalism sucks. Critical thinking is pretty cool. Thanks for being part of American Viewpoints with Mike Ferguson. The U.S. Supreme Court now officially has its own code of ethics. That's actually new. Earlier this week on News Talk STL, I caught up with Landmark Legal Foundation's Mike O'Neill to get his take on what this could mean to the court and eventually, well, to us. Now, there are codes of ethics for other layers right. of federal court. Uh, so right. does this actually change anything, Mike, or are they just putting into uh, a document the way they've right. been governing themselves anyway? Well, this is a codification of how they've been governing themselves for decades, I would say, I, I would presume to say. And look, there's a couple of things going on behind the scenes here. Congress has been ramping up the pressure. The media has been ramping up the pressure. And it's important to note that the media and the public, the media really has been putting this so-called pressure, has been putting this onus on Justice Thomas to justify some of his personal relationships. And it only happened in light of the fact that conservatives started to asserted control of the court and started to issue the Supreme Court started to issue decisions that the radical left, the Marxist left, didn't agree with, which, of course, were constitutional. But concurrent with these decisions are focusing on originalism and first principles and conservatism. The left has ramped up its pressure on the court. And as a result, Congress has begun hearings, was begun holding hearings, particularly Senator Sheldon Whitehouse has decided he's going to make the ethics of the court one of his uh, cause de celebs. And what happened behind the scenes here is Congress was ramping up its pressure, was going to actually subpoena the House, the Senate Judiciary Committee was going to actually subpoena friends of some of the justices and call them to testify in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And there, the, the, um, Senator Grassley was able to neutralize that, and the Chief Justice has been pushing for a formalization of this can- code of ethics. They've always followed these codes of ethics, but the, the Chief has really been pushing for it. So that they've essentially what they've done is they've codified the existing lower court canon of ethics. There's a couple nuanced dis- uh, distinctions between the Supreme Court and the lower court's canons of ethics, but essentially what they've done is really said, "Hey, this is how we've been behaving anyway. This is how we follow our ethics." This is what we're going to do. But we're formally releasing this to show that we are following now a code of ethics. Mike, given that we're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court here, does this code of ethics have any enforcement in it? And is it limited to the justices or does it apply to, say, the clerks? Sure. It applies to the justices. There is no enforcement mechanism. And again, I think you have to look at the first principles of the Constitution to determine why, what, an, how an enforcement mechanism presumably constitutionally works. The Article 3 states specifically that the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. So what does that do? That makes the Supreme Court a separate and co-equal branch on par with the Congress and the president. So the Supreme Court really has the power to enforce itself and police itself. Congress, I would assert, Congress does not have any constitutional authority to us to oversight, to to punish or to hold these hearings or to call to the carpet or to punish any of the justices for a perceived lack of lack of ethical uh, observations. Look, Congress does have powers to override decisions of the Supreme Court. They can enact laws. The Congress, the president can actually ignore Congress. Supreme Court doesn't have any enforcement mechanisms. They don't have an army. They don't have an agency to enforce their decisions. They rely on Congress and the will of the people to, to follow their decisions. So Supreme Court, polices itself. There is no enforcement mechanism. But again, I would also assert that the justices 
really for the most part in modern times for the past 20 or 30 years are really holding themselves to the highest of ethical obligations. And I go across the board with that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, for example, was an attorney who had who was part of a large law firm that had cases in front of the court. I don't believe Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I disagree with all of her decisions and her judicial philosophy, but I don't believe that she was ethically compromised. Similarly, I don't believe that Justice Jackson is ethically compromised with the fact that her husband was recently appointed to a very prestigious position on a judiciary, on a I think it's a judicial oversight or some sort of judge committee kind of um, committee in Washington, D.C. I really think that the judges across the ethical spectrum follow these and really adhere to these highest ideals of, of propriety. So I don't really think that there is an enforcement mechanism is needed because they really, really do are ethically are ethical across the board. Again, applying the modern times, if you can get into some of the justices back in the years past, might have played fast and loose, but really, for the most part, these justices, all of them, are really ethical. Does this matter to us? Is it more PR, or is this mm-hmm. something that actually could safeguard the court? I think it gets ahead of it. You know, it said there has been, I mean, Justice, I think a couple of the justices, Justice Kagan and Justice Barrett, have said publicly that there was a need for a formal code of ethics, you know, and this is, again, this has been all obviously tradition, the court is tradition laden. There's been a lot of bad press. I think this really kind of ends that, you know, ends that says, look, American people, we follow this. This is a light into how we operate. Really, again, a lot of this is the fact that some of that the American people don't necessarily understand what goes on behind closed doors. And that's that's probably by design. You know, the court wants to be above politics. So a lot of their decision making is shrouded in mystery and secrecy. This pulls the curve back and says, hey, guys. We follow these ethics. We've been following them for decades, and we are doing it now. We are promulgating a code of ethics that's saying that, hey, this is formally how we act and how we are to act. Hey, Mike, what? Um, let me go back to the code that they did release. Uh, what's mm-hmm. your impression sure. of what they did say? Okay, here's what we're going to codify, even if right. there's no enforcement mechanism. Uh, good, bad, uh, you know, vanilla, neutral. What? What's your take on what they've actually put into with the document? Well, good. I mean, I think it's generally it's good because they say they're going to uphold the integrity, avoid impropriety, and fairly, impartially, and diligently decide cases. And again, I would posit to you as a conservative justice, uh, as a conservative attorney who disagrees vehemently with the judicial philosophies of a number of the justices, I would concede that even those justices which I disagree with largely follow those those canon canon ethical canons. Uh, justice Sotomayor. Justice uh, Kagan, Justice Jackson, I really, even as I said, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I couldn't have disagreed more with on her judicial philosophy, I believe she largely followed that. I, I wasn't in the business of attacking the ethical propriety of these justices. I disagree with their judicial philosophy and their rationale in these cases, but I think largely for the past decade in modern times, these justices have behaved impartially and fairly. And so I don't think there was necessarily a need for it, but I do think from a PR perspective, it does check a certain box. So, Mike, even if we've had good fortune, so to speak, when it comes to having ethical justices, isn't there an argument in this day and age to say, well, let's go ahead and safeguard against unethical behavior because it could happen, it could affect anybody? Well, I think that it's, a, it's the power of the institution that really does guard against it. And again, this is what I was kind of shocked with the the, the release, as we talked about, the release of the uh, the draft opinion. And that kind of that was a really a shocking event. From if you look at the Supreme Court again in modern times, they are they are be they are the tradition and the power and the prestige of the institution really ensures that 
these individuals behave ethically. And again, there are protections they have within the culture of the Supreme Court. The individuals who are elevated to this position really are, in, in a lot of ways, are the best and the brightest of their of their particular ilk. You know, I mean, uh, Justice Kagan, for example, is, I would concede, is incredibly in, intelligent, bright, articulate, everything you'd want in a justice if you are if you are positing it from that position. So I do think that the power of the institution really largely keeps, keeps the ethical ethics in line per se. So I, I, I mean, again, for example, you have nine. If there's one that's behaving in an unethical manner, the eight can exert pressure behind the scenes. And I really think that self-policing has something to say for it. Mike, uh, where do people uh, learn more, get in touch with you? Sure, it's landmarklegal.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Landmark Legal Foundation. All right, let's do some campaign talk here just ahead. Uh, the last few election cycles have not gone that well for the Republicans, and some people, including even Donald Trump himself and some party activists and media figures, they're blaming the pro-life movement. Should conservatives and Republicans move away from the issue of abortion? Let's talk about that just ahead right here on American Viewpoints. 